When you're actually living these journeys, whether you're cycling around the world or starting up a business, you've got to live with it. You've got to live with the uncertainty that the story's not told yet. You're not seeing it in hindsight in terms of what it became. That's Mark Beaumont, the 18,000 mile man, world record holder for cycling around the world, entrepreneur, investor, and advisor. You know, that's when you have the sleepless nights. That's where you've got to make the hard decisions. And, you know, one day you'll look back on it and one day it will just be a memory. But the uncertainty and the struggle is not everyone's idea of fun. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Mark Beaumont to discuss what it takes to break a world record, not once, but twice, how to channel resilience in even the toughest times, and how true champions defy the odds to achieve the impossible. I want to just have one opportunity in my life to put all my cards on the table and say, what is the ultimate? Almost to the point where I didn't mind if I failed because I just wanted the opportunity to just go, what is my Everest? If all the unknowns were taken care of, what is humanly possible? All the cards on the table, I'm all in. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Mark Beaumont has pushed the limits of endurance over the past two decades. Among other world records, he remains the fastest person to have cycled around the planet, a journey that spanned 18,000 miles. We began our conversation by discussing the impetus behind Mark's obsession with adventure and his competitive drive. I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Because I can look back from, I guess, I feel like the first big chapter of my career was being an athlete and a broadcaster, uh, but I also had these other interests. And it's very clear that ever since I cycled across Scotland when I was 12 years old, so what's that, like 25 years ago now, there's a chronology. It looks professional. It looks almost inevitable. It looks, you know, things have got bigger and faster and better and all these world records, you know, have taken me to 130 nations and territories now. But that's what life feels like when you look back on it. The way you live your life, it's scary. Yeah, there's uncertainty. You can only see the next horizon. And when I was a kid, I had such little perspective on what life could be. I was homeschooled until I was 12. So my two buddies were my two sisters. I lived on a hill uh, farm in the foothills of, you know, the highlands of Scotland. So I'm sure your audience are just imagining like Braveheart and like wilderness. Well, it's not far off, you know, it was kind of, kind of rural. So if you don't go to a playground, you don't socialize, you never go to clubs. Like I just didn't have that sort of framework. I didn't watch television. It was quite an alternative uh, upbringing. I guess what I did have from a very, very early age was a real sense of self and independence because guess what? I was working on the farm. I had a great work ethic because I was out there grafting every day. You know, there was 60 goats to milk. There was 13 horses to muck out. There was 200 laying hens to collect the eggs from. There was a farm to run. So I spent most of my time being physical and being outside and... Um, yeah, I didn't mind my own company. So when I decided to cycle across Scotland at the age of 12, it didn't seem that crazy. 
and you can kind of see how, how over the years these ambitions got bigger and bigger. And when I left uh, university at the age of 22, I cycled around the planet the first time. That's an 18,000 mile race. And uh, I've been doing it professionally ever since. But that's hindsight for you. The way I lived life, like everyone, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I was making it up. What about the, the first time you got on a bike? Did you have any any sense of just feeling like, hey, this is a good fit. I'm pretty good at this. Like, what, what was your experience right, right out of the gate? When I was a kid, I was just a kid. You know, I was... I was I wasn't uh, trying to compete with my friends because I my sisters were my friends. I didn't have that social construct. I was never coached. I was never in a club. I wasn't trained in a normal sense. You know, most professional bike riders come up through the system. There was no system. My main passion was horse riding because my mum was big in the horse world. I was pretty close to the ski slope, so skiing was another big passion of mine. Do you know what? Adventure sport for me was more about wild places and journeys than it was about performance. For most of my life, the, all the wild man experiences have simply been using my physical ability to get places, you know, whether that was a boat or swimming or it was never really about beating anyone. It was always just about how to efficiently cross landscapes. And I've taken that to the extreme by breaking the world record for the length of Africa going from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego, climbing the highest peaks in the Americas. You know, I've taken it to the extreme for sure. But for me, it was more about great journeys than about being a performance athlete. So was it a good fit? I guess I was physically able. I'm quite a big guy. I'm tall for a bike rider. But because I was never playing soccer or I was never playing hockey, I'd never really built that side of my athletic career. Whereas climb a mountain, run a marathon, cycle across a continent. You know, I was always good at that stuff, but more because of the wanderlust of travel. And let's get to you know, 2008. So in 2008, as many know, like you broke the world record for you know, a circumnavigational bike ride. So basically a trip around the world. So basically 18,000 miles. And I believe the record prior to this was around, I think, 276 days or so. You broke the record, I mean, almost 100 days. You, you, you got it in 194. I guess if you could speak to that at length, because I mean, that, that was riding across, I think, over 20 countries, just that whole experience, what it was like training for that. And then I guess we'll, of course, get to what the experience was actually like across the those, you know, almost 200 days. So, I mean, cycling around the planet, it's such a simple concept. I was inspired when I was a teenager by Ellen MacArthur, uh, who single-handedly sailed around the planet. And I assumed that the round-the-world cycling record would be the most coveted, the most professional ultra-endurance uh, cycle record in the book. It's the world. Of course, it should be the biggest. And yet, when I spotted it back in 2007, when I started uh, this journey, it had barely been touched. I mean, I don't want to be unkind to anyone who has cycled around planet Earth, but the record stood at 276 days, which is very slow. I don't think it was really me being a great bike rider. Lots of bike riders could ride a century a day for half a year if they had to. It was more just that sense of enterprise, that sense of backing myself and going, why is this not being done properly? And why have the last three people come home within a few days of each other? Well, guess what? They're trying to beat each other. So to create this massive leap in performance was very simple. Just set my own plan, you know, go out there. But what an adventure, you know, can you imagine you've never traveled? I mean, I traveled to Europe and like East Coast US, but Scotland's a small country up here on the sort of North Atlantic to then suddenly be on your own on a push bike going through Iran, Pakistan, skirting the Helmand province, 
under police escort going through 3,000 miles of outback into a cracking headwind. I mean, to say this was, it was more of an adventure for what happened off the bike than on the bike. Riding 100 miles a day is easy enough, but, you know, where am I going to sleep? Where's my next meal? How am I going to get by? And I was 22 years old. I was a kid. I mean, I look back now and I think, my God, you know, I was, I, I took a lot of risks, but what did I have to lose? I was, I was a graduate with a perfectly good economics degree going, I want to go on a big adventure. I didn't think it would become the career that it has. I just thought, why not? If I've only got one chance, let's cycle around the planet. And how did you even, I imagine you trained for this, but what did that training look like, you know, just leading up to it? Well, I mean, I know you're a, a, a bike rider and, and it's interesting when you look back to your early days, like I thought I was being professional. I thought I knew my stuff. I didn't have a clue. You know, I didn't have a clue. My bike didn't fit properly. I got tendonitis because, you know, I wasn't set up right. You know, I would just go out and do massive rides thinking that was good training. Whereas, you know, clearly you need to train smart, not just train long and I was never giving myself time off, so I was overtraining. I was a kid, and you can make mistakes and get away with it when you're that age. When you're 38, uh, you got to be a bit more structured about these things. But it's interesting when it comes to endurance because so many athletes don't really come into their own until their 30s and 40s because it's about the psychology, the experience, as much as it is the, the raw physicality. If it's about being a, a crit racer or a tour rider, for sure, you know you need to have that raw power and maybe youth on your side. But endurance, ultra endurance, adventure, anyone could do that. Young, old, male, female. It's more about your life experience, your resilience, your ability to suffer, sleep deprivation, just the overall toolkit as well as that physicality. And it's not about how good am I today, but how good am I tomorrow, the next day, next week, next month. And just that ruthless consistency to perform. But I mean, riding around the planet the first time was just awesome. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to go on professional expeditions now for over 15 years, but I'll never replicate the raw emotions and the excitement of the first time, you know, the first time just being out there, being so scared. The more you go on in life, the more you know, and you look for that rawness, but you kind of know too much. And it was pre-social media as well. So I was out there with a camera filming it at arm's length. It makes me feel very old, but you know, Twitter and Facebook, it just wasn't a thing 15 years ago. And so I was capturing this journey for the BBC in the UK. I would just sit in my tent at the end of a long day and just chat to that camera for half an hour. It was my buddy on the road. So it wasn't just the, the bike race, but it was also the opportunity to share it with an audience. And that's what really launched my career, you know, capturing the journey. At what point even on that ride initially, like, did you feel, okay, I've got this, right? Because you, you beat the record by over 82 days. Like, was there a point where you're like, I'm, I'm going to crush this? I never doubted that because here's the painful bit. I did exactly what I set out to do. I said I would come home in 195 days, which was a plan of 100 miles a day plus a day off a fortnight for flights and contingency. I came home in 194 days and 17 hours. So if you go 18,000 miles within eight hours of your plan, you've got to be pretty honest and say, well, I just did what I set out to do. So you feel like it's your personal best. You feel like you left it all out there because it's the hardest thing you've ever done. But you've got to be brutally honest and look in the mirror and go, you'll never do better than what you set out to do. You'll never do better than what you set out to do. So you've got to get that intent right. Otherwise, human nature, you'll go nuts if you can't justify where you end up. And if you look at all my 
expeditions over the years. With due respect, I've never tried to break anyone. Even though I'm in the business of world firsts and world records, I've never tried to beat anyone. I've, with respect, done research on what other people have done. I know my history, but then I have the quiet confidence in the team around me to go, what is possible? And then you create those targets, build a plan around it. And what you tend to do is create these leaps in performance. You know, the second time I cycled around the world, I broke the world record by 37%, but I broke my target by 1.44%. So again, you look in the mirror and you go, I left it all out there. That's unbelievably hard. And yet, guess what? You did what you set out to do. So physically, was it hard? Yeah, for sure. But now looking back, it was kindergarten. First time around the planet, it was only hard because of where I was in my life at that point. Guess what? Once you get to one horizon, you can see the next but you can't see the second horizon until you've climbed that first mountain. And as somebody who's done this my entire career, nobody can fall out of bed and go, do you know what? I'm going to break that record unless they've earned their stripes, unless they know what it is. This is not about academic learning. There's, there's better bike riders within a mile of where I live here. I'm not the world's best bike rider, but the, the toolkit, the teamwork, the entire strategy to smash records is not just about something you can learn in a book or, you know, on a club ride. It's something you've got to earn through hard miles. And that gives you a perspective on what's possible, which is different from what other people do. Now, I know there's the things that you could obviously control, which is like your effort, for example, the planning you did in advance of this. But, you know, during this ride, even in 2008, you encountered a great deal of adversity, too. I mean, I remember reading about like in Louisiana and so on, you were involved in a, you know, in a car crash and then you got robbed later in the same day. I mean, if you could speak to some of that. <laughs> you're not a million miles from there right now, are you? Um, you're a little bit further further east. I was so excited by that point. I'd cleared Texas. I got to the, the Louisiana and I thought, hey, I'm done. I'm across the US and I'm in the last 3,000 miles. I've got a record in the bag. And then I had one of the worst days I've ever had on a bike where I I got um, hit by a car at a crossroads, buckled the front end, front end of the bike. I was pretty smashed. I uh, broke the windscreen of the car. And then that evening, in the town of Lafayette, trying to get things sorted, I was mugged. So imagine getting in a car crash at lunchtime and then mugged that evening. That was a bad day. I tell you what, equal and opposite. There was a lot of friendship of strangers. People really looked after me after that. So I don't want to be down on uh, the good people of Louisiana here. It was just a bad day and a run of bad luck. But these things can happen at any time. I've been in more tight corners than most. I've been in some really dangerous situations where I nearly lost my life. I've seen people pay that ultimate price. And it's not about whether stuff will go wrong in life, but it's how you react. And not to mention also, I think you also struggle with like dysentery during, during this ride. I mean, I know now you're, you're talking about these things looking back, right? Obviously, you, you got through them and so on. But I imagine you know, at the young age of 22 with so many unknowns and so on, like were there any times during this ride that you thought about essentially just, just giving up? I think when you're at your lowest ebb on an expedition, and I guess I've done this so many times, when you end up in a really, really tough spot where rationally you should give up, you could give up. You know, you're in, I mean, dysentery is a great example. If anyone's like had serious uh, DNV before, is like been seriously unwell, and the idea of riding a bike is just, but by the time you get into those places, you're normally so fighting. You're fighting not to get to the finish line and the big dream of the record, but you're fighting against stopping. Momentum is your greatest friend. So you don't have the perspective of, Oh, should I give up? Should I quit? Uh, is this that moment where I'm at that crossroads? 
it's not a moment in time when you're thrown into. There's normally a journey to get you to those really hard places. And so when you're there, you're just fighting. And it's interesting when you look back on them, you go, how, how did I do that? Like, how did I keep going in that extraordinarily difficult situation? And the reality is you've just got a different perspective. The only thing worse than going slowly is stopping. And when you're struggling to find momentum in your project, whether that's, you know, a big expedition ride or, or whatever you're doing in life, you're just the fear of failure. I'm not like some super inspired person. Take my second around the world, around the world in 80 days, which was, you know, much, much, much faster, riding 240 miles a day. I was out my bed at 3.30 every morning on the bike at four, every single day for two and a half months, riding 240 miles. I'm not an inspired person at 3.30 in the morning. I'm not somebody that like, I'm just freakishly positive, but I'm accountable. You know, tell me the consequence of failing. If I fail, everyone fails. And I've got a big team working for me. And these are expensive projects. So it's interesting, you know, don't give me some motivational speech or like high fives. Like I just don't work that way. I just think we've all got mental health and you've got to call a bad day bad. You've got to call a good day good. And you've got to, you can look back on your successes and sort of have pride in how you fought. But when you're in it, you've got to call it what it is. And there's no point in sugarcoating stuff and saying, oh, it's all about positivity and being motivated. Well, guess what? Some days you're not motivated and you've still got to get the job done. And on those days, what, what keeps you going? Maybe that's the hardest question of all. If the sum total of my ambition was to pay the mortgage and um, you know have a pension pot, I clearly wouldn't have lived the life that I've lived. I've done difficult things for a living. I don't know how to answer that. I'm scared of existing. I'm scared of just not for the fame. Okay, I've got a profile over here in the UK, but like not for the fame of it or the business you can make out of it. I'm really, I think I'm what I'm most intimidated by. Maybe it comes from my formative years of being homeschooled and then, you know, having a tough time in high school. But I, I don't like the idea of just being a number. And that's not an ego statement. I just, I like making time count. I like doing significant stuff. I like for my own sense of purpose and impact in the world with my friends, with my family, my community, my, my work. I like to, I like to create stuff, which, you know, really punctuates time. What's the point in life? It's about creating memories. It's about creating memories. So the thing that scares me most is just existing. And I know that's a bit probably too, too broad reaching, but it's the only way I can answer that question. How much of this did you learn about yourself just through these rides? How much of that self-awareness did you have before you went on these long rides to then actually learning this through that process, that experience? I mean, I, I guess it's a combination of the above. The formative years matter. You know, you've got to have a sense of independence to be able to do these things. I mean, I think living life with one eye in the mirror is a pretty good metaphor for the fact that you're out there, you're interacting, you're trying to do stuff, but you've got to have the self-awareness to go, why would I care? What does it matter? What am I trying to do here? Like, am I, and that sort of intrinsic motivation that you're talking about there, nature, nurture. I look at my kids, I've got a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, two daughters, and they're totally different existence to mine. You know, we, we live in a city, they're super sociable. They don't have the same environment that they're growing up in. But the only thing I hope that I can give them is a sense of independence. I think it's really, really important to be able to, you know, assimilate and, you know, fit in. And But, uh, but the independence of mind to do things you're passionate about. It's interesting because that independence often gets squeezed out of kids at school, whereas it becomes your greatest superpower in adult life. 
I, I, I see, I, you know, I work with people my age and older who still act like they're in a the playground. If everyone's wearing brown shoes, they want to wear brown shoes. And I'm like, well, if you want to wear black shoes or pink shoes, wear pink shoes. And I think that that ability to not care too much, you know, you're not being disruptive and being a maverick for the sake of it, but that ability to, if you have sort of a strong North star in terms of what you believe is important to not care too much if other people don't agree with you. So I want to talk about the differences between you know 2008 and then the ride in 2017. I mean, you know, the, the obvious difference was it went from 194 days, your record to 78 days, right? So you, you, you destroyed even your previous record, which was, was amazing. You did it in under 80 days, but I'd love to know just what were the differences even in you at that time? Because I imagine, you know, doing the math, one of your daughters was born, maybe, you know, both you, you were married, like it was very different from age 22, Mark. So if you could speak to that. Yeah, it couldn't have been more different. I mean, you've got to keep in mind in the decade in between, I'd done lots of different projects and started and been involved in other businesses. So I've had a pretty varied career. I've been you know, lucky over the last 15 years to, to have quite a portfolio. But what really fascinated me more than anything else was, again, my obsession, the ultimate, the world. How fast can you get around planet Earth? And by doing that under human power, you know, that's a bicycle. You know, we both love riding our bikes. How fast can you get around planet Earth? I don't understand why more people haven't tried this. Considering how many phenomenal bike riders there are, there's very few people who have stepped up to the, the around the world. I mean, a lot of people are racing, like race across America or transcontinental or pretty significant endurance races, but it's the world. Like, why are there not pe more people going around the world? And I'd watched with awe and with interest the male and female record getting smashed in that decade. And um, it stood at 123 days. At no point was I uh, sort of jealous of that and records are there to be broken. But I did think with all my experience, I thought, hang on, you could take this to a whole other level. Because so many of my records over the years had been about the stuff off the bike. You know, where am I going to get my next meal? Where am I going to sleep? Like there was always things taking away from the performance aspect. And as an athlete, and I'm sure you'll relate to this well, Michael, I wanted just to have one opportunity in my life to put all my cards on the table and say, what is the ultimate? Almost to the point where I didn't mind if I failed because I just wanted the opportunity to just go, what is my Everest? If all the unknowns were taken care of, what is humanly possible? All the cards on the table, I'm all in. Very few people in their careers have the opportunity to go all in. Most of us just get by and try and get through our emails. It's such a privilege to be able to say, I'm all in. And just to figure out what that is, max effort. 18,000 miles, the 80-day dream is a bit of a one-time prize. If you can be the first person to get around the, the planet in less than 80 days, you know, that was a Phileas Fogg fiction. It was a Disney movie. It's, you know, everyone knows around the world in 80 days. So to be the first to do that is a bit of a one-time prize. And we figured out how to do it. You know, 75 days riding, three days flights, two days contingency. I built a team of 40 people between logistics, performance, and media. And I trained two and a half years. It was, it was an obsession. It was an amazing journey. And as you say, I had kids. You know, when I, when I left college and university, I, I didn't have a care in the world. Apart from working in a bar and pulling pints and being a student, Whereas by the time you're at mid thirties, you've got a career, you've got responsibilities, you've got, you know, a couple of mortgages. It's a totally different thing to say, do you know what? I'm all in. 
And um, it wasn't worth really thinking about what feeling would have been. I mean, for the bike riders and athletes out there, I was riding twice the hours every day. So I was riding 16 hours a day rather than eight. And for every one of those hours, I was riding significantly faster. So to compare the first time around the world and the second time around the world is hard. And if people think 15 miles an hour is slow, which it is for a club ride, try and do it 16 hours a day and then wake up after five hours sleep and do it tomorrow and the next day and the next day, every single day for two and a half months. Most bike riders would just fall to bits. Their knees would explode. You know, their mind would just bend. Their backside would uh, not tolerate it. It's just an insufferable amount of time racing your bike. It's 1,100 hours time trialing. And I don't think there's many people listening to this podcast that will be able to quantify that. If you were to drive 16 hours, that's a long drive. Ride your bike, take five hours break and do it again every single day for the next two and a half months. It's not an arrogant thing to say that there's no reference point in the history of endurance cycling before we did it to know that was even possible. It's still amazing to me. Like, you know, and, and I want to ask you this because the prior record around the world was 276 days. At age 22, you, you break that 194 days. So you, you knocked almost 100 days off that. As a 22-year-old, do you even believe that you had that in you? No, no. I mean, when I was 22 years old, I would have told you that is my personal best. Like I've left it all out there. Based on my life experience, that was as fast as I could get around the world. Like we covered, guess what? That's what I said I would do. 78 days, 14 hours and 40 minutes. If you had told me that it was possible to get around the world in 78 days on a push bike when I was 22 years old, you know, I was maxed out doing it in half a year. That's not a marginal gain. Bikes have not got that much better over the last 10 years. And yet what we believe is possible has changed beyond recognition. And um, it'll be fascinating to see if and how and when that record is ever broken. Because it's going to be, I had an amazing team working for me. It was well-financed. It was an incredible performance plan based on a lifetime of experience. So, of course, it can be broken, you know. But the level of commitment to do so is going to be fascinating to see how. Absolutely. In, in 2017, what did you set out to do, right? Because I, I know you mentioned in, in, in 2008, you had your target. But what was the target? Was it, was it 80 days or was it just anything less than that? Yeah, so based off that plan of 75 days riding, three days flights, two days contingency, I had for each continent of the planet, I had 12 hours of contingency. So I could have come home anywhere between 78 days and, and the 80. So it gave me a 48-hour window to, to do it. It would have been hard to come in in anything less than 78 days just based on my, my intent you know, what I set out to do. Because if you go out there trying to average 240 miles a day, to have come in less than that, you'd have to. But the, the crazy thing about that is to make 240 your average, you have to ride through it, you know, regularly. You've got to be riding 260s, 270s, just like, you know, they're nothing. And then wake up tomorrow and do it again. So my margin for error was tiny. You know, you mess up in a given day. If you don't make that 240 average in a single day, it's very hard to make it back because it's pretty hard to smash out a 300 and then wake up the next day and do it again. And again, most people listening will be like, ah, 300 miles is not too bad. Get on a push bike and tell me that. Were there times on, on that ride where you, you, know, you were concerned or worried just because you know, the, the margins were so narrow that you know, if anything were to happen, I mean, if you were to get sick, if something were to happen, that that could throw off the entire ride? 
Yeah, and it did. I mean, I flew across Europe. I cleared Europe in seven days, seven countries in seven days. What a great sense of momentum crossing a continent like, uh, you know, small countries of Europe. I mean, most people wouldn't do a country a day, but you can get through them pretty fast. I got to Moscow and uh, day nine, I crashed and I broke some teeth, hit the pavement, hit the road with my face and my outstretched hand. And I um, cracked my radio head. So I put a fracture through my left elbow and had some teeth, uh, broken teeth. So if you're trying to shovel eight, 10,000 calories of food down through broken teeth and you are time trialing for 16 hours a day on a cracked elbow, I was in trouble. So that ride through Russia and Mongolia and China, uh, there was a lot of pain management. We managed to get on top of that. If I'd given up on the day that I'd crashed for any longer than 35, 40 minutes, again, it would have been pretty hard to make it back. So there was that constant urgency, even on a good day, to go, do you know what? We just can't lay up at all. I had a couple of serious incidents on the way around. I had three crashes. They were always like really worrying moments. And it wasn't just my performance on the bike. It was the whole logistics piece, you know, getting stuck on a border or flight delays or everything needed to work perfectly. And actually the ride across from... Anchorage to Halifax, so five and a half thousand miles across uh, the US and Canada. In many ways, that was my hardest because I'd got back to the Northern Hemisphere. I was in the second half of the ride, like I'd started to think about the finish in Paris. And yet, you know, going through the Midwest and the, the Great Lakes, it was just Groundhog Day. It was just, I was in the darkest place I'd ever been as an athlete. I couldn't. I couldn't think my way through that task. I had really tough headwinds going through North Dakota and heading through that piece. And um, I, I just psychologically was in a really, really dark place and my team were worried about me. I guess it's hard to know how, how you cope with that level of suffering, but it's at that point you're too far from the start and you're too far from the finish. You're kind of stuck in the never-endingness of the project. You mentioned the support team several times. Like if you could speak to just the importance of having a great support team, I mean, for everything from nutritional, mechanical, logistical, I imagine that these rides probably would not have been possible without a great team. No, exactly. And so many of my expeditions over the years have been wild man unsupported or I've been on teams of athletes. So I've done a lot of mountaineering, uh, Arctic expeditions, ocean rowing, like rowing the Atlantic, where, you know, there's different team dynamics between film crew, athletes, sometimes completely on my own, or I'm the filmmaker on the team. So I've, I've worked in all sorts of different dynamics. But then when it comes to the around the world in 80 days, I've got an amazing team on the road. It's a fully supported race. And then I've got uh, a media team based out of South Africa and the UK and logistics. So there's this amazing dynamic and the really interesting part within team is everyone's great at their jobs. I've tried to hire the best people I can who are technically brilliant. But the thing I value the most is that behavioral change under pressure. So not just knowing what to do, but actually being utterly dependable when you turn the heat up. And the people who left my project, it wasn't because they weren't good. It was because of the behavioral change piece. If I'd stood on the start line in Paris and said to my entire team, does everyone get it? Does everyone understand how we're going to get around the world in 80 days? They'd have gone, yes, boss. But the reality is they didn't. They got their jobs. They were good at their piece of the puzzle. And it was a really complicated puzzle. I was the guy who was 12 years old, who first pedaled across Scotland, who had built over you know two and a half decades the perspective that this might just be possible. And there was a wonderful moment when I was in Mongolia 
heading out the Gobi Desert. And uh, Alex, one of my crew, turned around to me and he said, uh, Mark, we're going to do this. And I looked at Alex and I said, at what point did you not think we were going to do this? But in that sort of moment of honesty, I caught this sense of the entire team had bought into my dream. They really wanted this dream to happen, but they never could have come up with the dream. So that's not to take away from the power of the team. I didn't have the skill set and the capacity that my team had. They were utterly brilliant, but they were bought into my dream. And I can delegate the entire project to them in terms of running the race, but I'll never delegate the emotional leadership. If I smile, everyone smiles. If I look worried, my team get worried. Because ultimately, I'm the guy with the experience to put this together. And then I trust them implicitly to make it happen. Why do you think they did it? You know, to be on this journey with you for, for so many days and just through all these experiences, what, what do you think was, was their reasoning for it? I guess they varied. I've had great loyalty from people who have worked with me over the years who've wanted to come back. Maybe they do it for the same reason I do, doing things which are hard, the struggle, doing things which create positive memories whilst, you know, testing yourself. They don't have the profile. They don't have the book deals, the TV deals. They don't get what I get out of it. So it's a good question to ask. Why would you care? And I get people coming to me a lot saying, Mark, can I be on your team? Or Mark, I'd love to do what you do. And I always say, I think you like the idea of what I do because you watch it on telly. And that's not, again, a, a sort of an ego statement. But when things are sort of packaged nicely into social media or television, then it all looks very Hollywood. Whereas when you're actually living these journeys, whether you're cycling around the world or starting up a business, you've got to live with it. You've got to live with the uncertainty that the story's not told yet. You're not seeing it in hindsight in terms of what it became. You know, that's when you have the sleepless nights. That's where you've got to make the hard decisions. And, you know, one day you'll look back on it and one day it will just be a memory. But the uncertainty and the struggle is not everyone's idea of fun. So it's a great question. And it's not for everyone who comes to me and says, I've, you know, really enjoyed following and I'd like to do what you do. There's probably a minority of people who, who they would actually enjoy the process as opposed to the association. In addition to taking on these ambitious initiatives, Mark also documented his journeys for a series of media segments and documentaries. I asked him to unpack his decision to film and produce this content, giving the public an inside look into his adventures. I guess it's always been part and parcel, and I've often been the filmmaker myself. I had a quite traditional training as a, film, as a documentary filmmaker with the BBC, and growing up documenting all my journeys. And it's kind of weird when you reflect back to the start of our conversations, because for this homeschool boy who never watched television and didn't interact and was never in the playground, I've then weirdly made my life on stage and on television and in a very public eye. And yet, clearly, I don't mind, you know, if I'm stuck in a cave for half a year on my own, I, I don't mind either extreme. But I think a lot of people see that media side as a necessary evil to make a business out of what they do. Whereas the storytelling, the communication, the broadcast element was always there from the start. I was very fortunate in the first five years of my career to work with the, with the, the great late um, filmmaker, David Pete, who we filmed all over the world together. And he turned filmmaking and storytelling from, in my mind, as an uh, like a, I was just an economic graduate thinking, this is about return on investment. This is about earned media value. This is a utilitarian sum where I need to get sponsorship and media. I had no passion 
for media. It was just simply a tool to get the trips done. And then I worked with David, who just was one of these brilliantly creative people who had a wonderful connection with people. And he shared that love for like really capturing moments and honestly telling them with a global audience in a way that was meaningful. It completely changed it for me. It changed it from a, a business and a sum to actually something which was an integrated part of what I was doing. So it's very hard for me to imagine going on these huge athletic endeavors without the opportunity to also film them, whether it's objectively like somebody else is filming me or, or, or I'm holding the camera. And Mark, I'm sure I'm not the only one wondering this, but what do you think about on these rides? I mean, you're riding 16 hours a day, day after day. Like what's, you know, what are you thinking about? Oh, everything. I mean, the wonderful thing about um, expedition riding is it might be brutally hard. Um, same when you're climbing a mountain. And yet it's also life at its simplest. It's about progress, physical progress. It's about hydration, nutrition, sleep. So we're not spinning plates. We're not trying to get through our emails or multitasking with the kids or, you know, it's, it's just a process. It's a journey. So life is hard, but simple when you're on these expeditions and you have time to finish your thoughts. You have time to really think deeply about the past, the future, your motivation. Sometimes you just geeked out on data and you're, you're, you're there as a performance athlete, but you don't need to do that all the time. So your mindset's in a totally different place at four o'clock in the morning when you're trying to get going than when you are late in the day and you've got the big miles behind you. So the answer is everything because you've got time to think. And people always conflate time on your own with boredom or loneliness. You know, the old cliche where you can be very bored and lonely if you're in a city you don't know, surrounded by people who you can't connect with. And yet I've never been at 6,000 meters on a mountain or in the middle of a desert and felt sorry for myself or lonely because I've chosen to be there. I've put myself in that situation. And the momentum of that journey is what gives me that sort of narrative, that sort of thought process to keep going. There's always something to think about. It seems like a vast amount of time, but I would put the challenge back to people listening. How distracted is your life? How many thoughts do you get to finish? I would much prefer to have moments in my life where I do have that space. And ironically, I spend half my life on expedition wishing I was at home because it's brutal. And then I spend half my time at home wishing I was an expedition for that simple flow that space, that ability to focus on one task. And I know you hinted at this at this earlier, but breaking these world records, achieving this level of, of notoriety, if you will, I mean, it's, it's, it's something obviously many people appreciate, but I want to speak to some of the sacrifices involved, right? At the end of the day, life is really a series of choices. What, what were some of the things that you had to give up uh, in order to achieve all this? Yeah, there's, there's, there's always an opportunity cost, especially in early on in our careers, you're constantly facing crossroads in terms of what your life is going to look like. So what did I give up? I guess I gave up um, some other career options. I definitely forfeited some relationships. Girlfriends came and went in those early years. So personal life, I'm very lucky to have, you know, a beautiful supportive wife and two daughters. And I feel like I've, I've managed to balance my ambitions, both as a as an investor, as a, as a business person, but also as, a, as an athlete, as a, as a traveler, you know, somebody who spent half my life on the road with the fact that I do have a sense of normality and a good friendship group and, and family. But of course, like anyone in life, there's been some big choices along the way for sure. 
And I go back to that earlier thought, you know, if my sum total of my ambition was just to get by, you know, I wouldn't have led the life that I have. And the biggest opportunity cost is time and um, just what you do with that. And, and, and I guess the last thing to say on that topic is I've had some really scary moments. When I capsized in the Atlantic and spent 14 hours trying to be rescued, I very, very nearly didn't come back. It's moments like that that you wonder if you're risking too much. And that, that little blip that you mentioned, that was between you know, 2008 and 2017. I believe that was in 2011, right? So you joined this six-man team to row. At, at the time, I, I was going to ask you about it. But I know we've been talking about the cycling, but when you were capsized, what, what was going through your mind at the time? Like, what, what was that experience like? I mean, in that degree of urgency and emergency, um, I went very analytical, very cold, very process driven, you know, training kicked in, we needed to salvage. I mean, we, we, we capsized 500 miles from shore. So 500 miles from Barbados, middle of the Atlantic. And um, yeah, we were we were in trouble, no life vests on, uh, floating around in the water, staying on the surface, trying to keep my teammate on the surface who was drowning getting the life raft out and then salvaging the flares, VHF, the satellite phone and all the kit. I mean, that process of swimming and sorting out all the kit was the first six hours. And then we sat tight through the night and we were rescued by a Taiwanese cargo vessel. But none of that was certain. None of that was inevitable. We had to work incredibly hard. The upset came afterwards. We spent 10 days coming back across the Atlantic and got dropped off in Gibraltar. And there was a lot of trauma afterwards. There was a lot of what ifs and upsets and daydreams and nightmares and the rest of it. I mean, the human mind has a very strange way of dealing with um, trauma. And that, you know, post-traumatic process is, is, is perfectly normal and perfectly human. But I think at the time, um, through training and through experience, I was, I, was, I was very on it. I was very accountable. I was one of the guys that worked hardest to save the lives of the crew. But that's not always the case. You know, I've been in I've been in many situations where people have the the ability, the the learning, the toolkit, but they just can't function. You know, in the Atlantic, one guy closed his eyes and prayed for 14 hours and praying might have helped. But I think getting the satellite phone probably helped more. So it's yeah, it's interesting how people deal with situations like that. And at the time, I mean, you had you had children, right? I mean, this is this was very different. I think encountering these things when you know when you're alone is one thing, but you know when you have a family, did that change anything for you? I'm just curious. Like, did that change your drive or your perspective on on taking on these challenges once you had a family and kids? A little bit. I mean, we all age and mellow a little bit, don't we? But um, I'm not like an Alex Honnold. I'm not somebody who's trying to free climb mountains, or I'm not an adrenaline junkie. And I think probably maybe that's a bad example because Alex would say neither is he. I'm a planner. You know, I'm a planner. I'm meticulous about what I do. And um, I don't go looking for issues or setbacks, but in a weird way, I relish the mindset and the struggle when hard things happen. So again, I'm not, I just know by trying to break world records that there's going to be days when things go wrong. I like having the knowledge that I can cope, but that's very much a self-awareness piece. And uh, have I mellowed over the years? Yeah, for sure. Um, has my perspective changed with kids? Yeah. And what I try and do now more than ever is have enough shared experiences with them. So by the, by the time they're 16, 17, 18, they've got a similar toolkit so that they know how to deal with pressure. 
I mean, it'd be great if they're book smart, but I, I care more about the independence of mind and the ability to to deal with uncertainty. I mean, people approach me all the time and say they want to climb Everest and cycle around the world. And I say two things. I say, shoot for the stars, but learn your trade. So the learn your trade bit is the bit that most people miss. <laughs> you know, live your greatest dream, go out there and do something crazy. Yeah, for sure, but learn your trade. Know yourself well enough that you can deal with pressures and setbacks and you've got the basic toolkit to take on these things. So, you know, Instagram inspiration is amazing, but you've got to back it up with hard, hard hours, whether that's 10,000 hours or whatever. With my kids, it's about shared experiences. So whether, whatever it is in life, and it doesn't need to be adventure sports, they've got just the mental toolkit to know how to, to deal with situations. Because if you were to interview any of the six of us that capsized in the Atlantic, you would attribute all sorts of character traits. You would assume resilience. You'd assume all the things you go, oh, you're hard because you've been through this incredible trauma. That doesn't for a moment tell you what they were thinking, what they were communicating, and what they actually did. All it said was they were there. And I've made that mistake, and I'm sure you have, hiring people for businesses before. They're super impressive because of companies they've worked for or projects. They, and you can suddenly tell somebody's on their little hobby horse. And I'm like, ah, yeah, but what did you actually do? Not, not, not I was there or I was associated to it. What did you do? And that accountability piece is often missed. But when you start building teams, it's kind of the most important bit. Between cycling around the globe and being capsized in the Atlantic Ocean, regular life can seem pedestrian. I asked Mark how he adjusts to life between adventures. Yeah, there's always a blue. There's a period of uncertainty. When you finish a major, major project, you know, you exit a business or you finish cycling around the planet, the greatest emotion is relief. If you've had a leadership role, it's not a celebration. You're not pulling backflips. You're not a cheerleader for these things. You're heartfelt relief. Pride in the team that have made it happen with you. But if you've shouldered the responsibility to make these things happen, what you feel on the finishing line and afterwards is just, wow, okay, we did it. And it's such a weird anticlimactic emotion. You want to sort of scream and jump up and down, but people do that around you and for you. If you're the one that's driven success, then you feel relief. And then there's a, a void. There's a sense of, wow, that incredible routine, that sort of obsession, those blinkers that allowed you to achieve what you did with your team is not there. So whilst you've looked forward to sitting on the couch and watching uh, Netflix all day, that's actually wholly unfulfilling quite quickly because you're so used to, you know, living life in fifth gear. And the reality is you can't live life with that intensity. You can't be maxed out all the time. You can't be constantly in sort of world record breaking mode. But when you know how to do that and how to switch it on and off, the transition's not always easy. I think if you talk to any Olympian or high performing athlete, there's always a bit of an unknown the day after the big event and it's not seen and it's not unknown. And I, I help so many athletes transition from athletic careers because that sort of uncertainty, especially if it comes with public profile or financial security, then there's a whole cocktail of stuff going on there that allows you to build a sense of self and purpose outside of that event, which became your identity. So I mentioned this at the, at the start, you, I was a younger guy. I'm 35. You're, you're only 38 years old. It seems like you're nowhere near even settling down or slowing down. You're also an advisor and investor. What, you know, what future challenges at this point get you excited? It could be physical or otherwise. 
So the, at this point, I've got quite an interesting sort of range of work in so far as I want to spend more time at home. I've got a beautiful family. I live in Edinburgh in Scotland, which is an amazing launch pad for adventures in across Europe. I often probably travel across to the US a couple of times a year as well for business interests. I split my time between athletic endeavors, filming projects and investing. Some of the big problems in the world right now, the big challenges, I'm working hard to try and build an ecosystem of businesses that are, are addressing them around healthcare, food and water security, climate change, things which are fundamentally affecting our lives and for generations to come. So Scotland has got such a, an amazing history in innovation, especially in science and engineering and technology. And I'm very passionate in terms of trying to take, it's very similar mindset to launching major expeditions. How do you build the right performance team? How do you build the right finance? How do you scale these, tell relevant stories into, into relevant markets? So if I was to tell you for the next five, 10 years, what I'm very keen on doing is not doing the same thing. So I've built a box myself. I'm that guy that cycled around the world twice, but I'm not going to cycle around the world another three, four or five times. So I'll keep pushing myself as an athlete. I'll keep making interesting films, but I want the next 15 years to be distinct, different, challenging, and interesting. And I do that for my own sanity. And it's really interesting when you're perceived as successful at something, people just want to put you on a shelf and keep you doing what you do. But I'm too young for that. You know, being out there and pushing myself as an athlete allows me to have conversations like this. But the thing which I think I can have most significant impact with over the next 15 years is businesses and organizations that are are addressing some of the big global challenges and i'm glad i'm glad you went there because i view as one really supporting the other you know to, it's, it's less about just being you know a, a phenomenal cyclist it's just the things you've learned how you've grown as an individual the challenges you've solved like just that level of not just mental toughness but just commitment and endurance it seems like all of that is very applicable to the business world as well yeah. I mean, I was an economics graduate. One of my biggest backers for the last 15 years was private equity. So I got to know a huge amount working with their teams, the origination team, actually meeting and investing in businesses, but also how to, how to build the portfolio companies. But I've taken all of that interest and all of that learning into the more early stage stuff. How do you get businesses off the ground? How do you scale ambition? So that's what I'm passionate about. And for me, it's about credibility. You know, there's a lot of people who are very process driven and you know can work in big organizations but actually it's a learned habit to have the the energy and the the ability to get stuff started you know just cut through the faff just build that cadence of communication and action so um i guess like yourself i'm quite high energy i'm quite demanding i want to see sort of fast change but I'm rewarded by surrounding myself with people with, with a lot of energy who want to do interesting stuff. That sort of how do we make time count piece, which is kind of where you started this conversation, is what gets me excited about the next 10 years. And I think maybe it's because I'm a dad now. I've got a slightly different perspective on how I allocate time. Well, I've, I've got two young daughters of my own. I've got a two-year-old and a one-month-old, so I can I, I can empathize with that. And you know, you used to hear about okay, well, there's a trade-off there, and I don't know. I mean, I, I speak to a lot of, of great leaders, and they've been able to build you know phenomenal organizations and make a huge impact, and still be great dads, and you know, and, and really spend time with their family. I'm curious, just you know, if you have any certain you know habits or routines or anything that you know help to keep you on track on a day-to-day -day basis. 
one of the most important things is to have people outside of your your partner or, and your close friends who you can talk to about these things. Have a peer group, have a wise counsel, have three or four people you can speak to. Because I know we like to talk to our wives and husbands about these things, but they're too emotionally and financially connected to your success to give impartial advice. So that's not a negative comment about my amazing wife. She's hugely supportive, but she also says what she thinks I want to hear. So having people who I can problem solve um, my career with outside, you know, I don't have all the answers. And so I, I trust people who I can pick up the phone to have a coffee with and really brainstorm some of these big crossroads I end up in life with. And it's got to be something, somebody other than your life partner because of the four given reasons. And the, and the other part is um, just build that habit. Just be furiously busy in, in, in getting stuff done. People always say, you know, build a habit of saying yes, be open to opportunities, but actually being relevant and productive in life is actually getting, being very good at saying no. You've got to be able to say no to stuff because a lot of people, and I can be guilty of this, are just silly busy. Be being busy is such a, a boring currency. Honestly, if you walk around and you meet people, the first two things they talk about in the UK is the weather and how busy they are. And it's just, just ban those topics from your life. Like I would much prefer to not be busy, but be relevant. And that sort of clarity, there's three things that matter in life. The, our family, our work and our community. And so many people compromise on one of those three or they put them into different parts of their lives. You know, so many men in particular say, well, I'll see my kids once I've taken care of work and finances or I'll take on community responsibilities once I've, you know, done other stuff. And it just ends in regret. You've got to have that objectivity on your own life and go, actually, do you know what? For each period of time, only three things matter, family, community, and work. And if you don't have arrows, metaphoric arrows, going into those three spheres and understand how they intersect in a, in a sort of a Venn diagram, you end up suffering yourself. This is not about being a goody two-shoes. This is about your own mental well-being and sense of purpose. I remember when the pandemic hit last year and I was um, you know, really worried about work. I went from you know, most of my projects being canceled but actually doing something significant in terms of communities and charities and my own kids was the thing which didn't just a help them, I hope, but actually gave me a sense of um, being back in the driving seat. One of the things I did, I was inspired by a, a US ultra runner who ran across the States and then decided to run every street in San Francisco. Amazing guy. I wish I could remember his name. And anyway, I was inspired by that in the first week of lockdown last year. So I dug out the map of Edinburgh, my, the city here, and um, decided to run every street in Edinburgh with my daughter. So that was my twist on it. She, she was six years old at the time and she was on her bicycle. So we would do like eight, 10 miles a day. We would just go over out at lunchtime, go for you know an hour and a half, two hours. And we did it every day. We'd take like you know a day off at of the weekend, but we did it for three months. And it was just this project where we colored in the roads we'd been and every cul-de-sac and every roundabout. But to spend over 100 hours chatting to my daughter about the world, to see parts of my town and community, which I never had reason to go to before, during a time where I was really struggling in terms of work and purpose, as we all were. My God, I mean, last year was tough. But it was just something where I said, right, in the Venn diagram of life, family, work, community, I'm not just going to get upset about work because I can't travel right now. I'm going to do something to 
get the arrows going back out in the world because I know that will create equilibrium in terms of purpose and things will average out. So I think that's the way I think about those things. Build that wise council and have a level of awareness that for each period of time, to be good at work, you've got to be good at the other stuff too. And Mark, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? Being a game changer means having the quiet confidence to follow your own North Star, working with great people and acknowledging you're going to make mistakes along the way. I want to give a huge thank you to Mark Beaumont for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when Mark said that the only thing worse than going slowly is stopping. And even when you're not feeling motivated, you've got to dig deep and find a way to get the job done. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Mark Beaumont, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time and we'll be speaking with the managing partner of Meyer Wilson and author of The Investor Protector, Stories of Triumph Over Financial Advisors Who Lie, Cheat, and Steal, David Meyer. A lot of people think that everybody's the same, that XYZ financial advisor is the same, and there's a huge difference. We get calls every week, I'm not exaggerating, from folks who have lost their entire life savings with an advisor who is either by him or herself and has no assets, or they're with a firm that is undercapitalized and doesn't have the ability to pay a judgment. If the firm isn't collectible, then there's nothing we can do. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. 